0: Don't just live life, make life boom.
1: Hey guys, you're not there. I hope you're having a fantastic bank holiday Monday. Today, I would like to share the floor, or should I say the podcast, with Dr. Cyrus Abassian, who is a consultant psychiatrist. So, he has been putting out some great, great, great content on his YouTube channel, which I'll give you access to his um, his feed after the show and everything's going to be on the show notes in regards to the effects of coronavirus around the social economic factors and also our health and well-being. As a consultant psychiatrist, he is well-placed to discuss and share with you what it's like not only on the front line, but the wider, broader um, challenges that we need to be prepared for in order to keep ourselves mentally in top shape and also keep ourselves positive because let's be honest, this has been a very challenging time for the whole of humanity. It's a global crisis and sometimes we can get caught up in the, the noise and thinking it's all about just us. This is a global pandemic. So first and foremost, I'd like to thank Dr. Cyrus for coming on the show. So Dr. Cyrus, how are you sir?
2: Good, good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm enjoying my bank holiday Monday at home.
1: Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Did you Trying get up to, to anything?
2: Busy in lockdown.
1: <laughs> so how exactly so how are you keeping so busy in lockdown? What sort of things are you doing to keep yourself in top mental health and and just your general health and well-being? What are you what kind of stuff uh, are
2: you doing? I you see I've actually shaved this morning, which is, you know, it's a good start. To the week. Yeah. Uh it's important to have a routine and it's important to not to abandon a, a weekly and daily structure. It's important to get up in the morning on time to plan ahead as much as possible and use the technology that we have uh just do a full day's work. Sure. Uh I'm lucky in some ways because as a psychiatrist and a lot of what I do involves talking and communicating with patients uh, and so uh, i've been calling my patients We've been having telephone consultations also be using um uh skype and facetime to have consultations with our patients yeah and uh so the, the team meetings i mean you're, you're, you're a psychiatrist you're a mental health professional yourself uh, a lot of what we do depends on teams we work in teams and teams have to function. We're using Zoom and also increasingly uh, Teams, Microsoft Teams, to communicate with each other. Yeah, I find that fantastic. I I think it's working reasonably well. If the technology is running smoothly, if you have internet access, then you can get the work done.
1: Yeah, you just said that if you have internet access, which I think is key. And prior to the coronavirus, there were studies in terms of how many people have access to um, broadband at a decent speed And in fact That was one of the Campaign strategies By the opposition In terms of Trying to get more votes We give you free access To broadband So it is known Prior to coronavirus That accessing Decent speeds And broadband Is not Consistent across the country there, there are pockets Whereby you cannot get access To any decent yeah. speed To operate Microsoft Teams Zoom Skype And all those types of things So it's it's important for us to also frame that in mind, whereby working from home might not really be feasible in some areas because the connectivity is still so so bad.
2: Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, you can't use technology if you don't have the technology. Exactly. And uh, connect. You know, we, I mean, there's a lot of talk about uh, social distancing. Yes. And I don't think we're socially distant. We should be physically distant from each other but socially okay. we should be connected with the technology that we have. Oh, no, that's, that's what a what strong point.
1: Doing. That's a strong point. Yeah, we physically distant. I, I totally subscribe to that, but we should still be socially connected. Yeah, I, I, I really, really, really like that. And I understand that some hospitals actually communicate in via walkie-talkies where they've had problems with connectivity. So um, I would like to thank everybody in the healthcare professions for being so enterprising and resourceful particularly in time of crisis, to think very creatively in terms of how best can you still remain contact, keep those teams engaged, and also um, I'll reach out to um, patients. I was familiar with quite a few conversations within the health informatics space in regards to Skype. Because Skype has been one of those things, again, pre-coronavirus, Having video consultations has always been one that f- um, flags up IG concerns within health. It always has. And some trusts have been more forward thinking, but the whole issue about um, confidentiality, who has access to the feed, all of these things have always been the stumbling block. But I, I see this now uh, has been the tipping point in terms of coronavirus that, no, yeah.
2: we need to communicate with IG. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of red tape in the NHS, as you know. Yes. There's so many policies and everything's really slow and they slow to change. And uh, a lot of it is is, is, is re- relevant. I mean, confidentiality is important. Mm. Uh, but it's a very conservative institution, the NHS, really slow to change. And they've been forced to change because of, of what is happening uh, right now. Yeah. Uh, and at the end of the day, uh, they they
1: had to adapt and they're adapting. Yeah, good. And I think I, I, you're, you're, I can I can completely second what you're saying there. I remember conversations about Babylon Health and how it was be, it was being received in terms of having these online um, mobile consultations to doctors and all of that. I think whether or not they were cherry picking their their their, their um, patients or not, but the fact of the matter is they were adding great the potential, adding great value in terms of engaging people that do not need to go directly to the GP and create a bottleneck within that um, um, GP practice by engaging with the patient on their own terms. And this is what mobile um, and digital technology can enable you to. I had a conversation with one of my, actually my co-hosts yesterday regarding the the religious aspect of what's happening here. And religious institutions are not in any way um, immune to the the byproduct of the coronavirus in terms of the physical distancing, so how do you, how do you still communicate with people? And a lot of some of these institutions are very much conservative, just like the NHS has been, you know. But then now they have to reach out, do online services, all of that kind of thing. So I think everybody now is riding that that wave, as it were, of welcoming a more Appropriate solution to the challenges ahead, and that's using digital technology effectively. The right technology will enable you to communicate. So, I wanted to share with you. I wanted you to actually share with us some of that rich um, data that you are expressing in terms of within mental health, which is um, very much, eff- which is which very much eff- is a, very much affects people who are from socially economically deprived. Neighborhoods, um what sort of things are we bracing ourselves for in terms of mental health services? Because I know all our services has been focused on the acute front door. You know, who's going in? Any get um get get them treated. And but in terms of the mental health, which is uh, the far more hidden. And you did allude to it in your last video in terms of issues such as um domestic violence. All these things can can be the byproducts. What's are we bracing ourselves for something that's going to come after
2: we the lockdown is lifted? There is there is a link between the economy and the health. I mean, this has been established. There's a correlation between the two. And how well the economy of the country is doing affects the health and well-being, both mental and physical health, of individuals in that, in that society. Yes. Now, there are many studies showing that people who are unemployed, people who are less advantaged, the poor in particular, they do badly. Um, Now, the economic impact of what's happening right now will be significant. And one worry we have, uh, we sort of, a lot of health professionals, is that the, the reaction right now, uh, which, to a large degree, is appropriate. Uh, we are fighting coronavirus. Yes. But the byproduct, the secondary effect of it, will become fully man- manifest in months, perhaps years. And we know that uh, when there's a recession, there is increase in alcohol dependency, there is increase in mental health issues, there's increase in suicide, and there is there is increase in, in, in many uh, health conditions as well. Sure. Uh, and the UK will rely on the National Health Service, which is uh, it, it's funded by the taxpayer. It's a percentage of the GDP of the country. Now, we all disagree regarding what that percentage should be. Most health professionals believe it should be higher. But even if you increase that percentage and the economy does badly, the GDP goes down. There's less money going into the health sector. There are less hospitals being built, uh, and there's less teams set up to deal with sort of the mental health outcomes of what's happening right now. So the effect could be direct because of the what's happening in the economy. Sorry, indirect because of what's happening uh, in the economy, and also direct because of the the anxiety, the the trauma caused. Uh, and the news, you, know, you just turn the TV on, you are know, just been bombarded with stuff about coronavirus. And they're interviewing patients who've survived, interviewing relatives, always, you know, how how, how horrible, how, how terrible it is. Yes, indeed. And so. that can affect the health and well being of individuals. Because what I tell my patients is that you have to think positively, you need to do a daily exercise, try and watch comedy. Try and keep yourself occupied, and spend maybe fifteen minutes to half an hour just watching the news. Make sure you know what's happening. But for the rest of your life, try and you know live as normally as possible.
1: I think that's key In because yeah, yeah. I think that's key because limiting the the amount of access to news is important, but also making sure you do furnish yourself with the facts. Because there's a lot, particularly on, on more closed like WhatsApp groups, there's a lot of misinformation also being spread out, which is can be very, very damaging in terms of the way people. A lot of
2: nonsense, a lot of fake news. I mean, it's yes. just it's terrible. Some of the stuff there. It's just um, yeah. immoral, and unethical to put these things out, and unfortunately, some people believe in it. Yeah this is a wrong uh, time for
1: that and i think that the law should come down on them very heavily because they are accountable yeah. people know now enough about twitter instagram facebook whatsapp to to know that they are responsible for the information they put out because misleading the public puts other people at risk you know and that that can never be good that can never be right and exactly you shouldn't do that i remember i think the worst thing i ever heard regarding this whole coronavirus, the worst thing I absolutely heard was something came to me on my WhatsApp feed regarding um, an issue saying um, black and ethnic minority groups shouldn't know why about coronavirus. This was was just probably the first week it really hit the UK. You know, there was no cases at the moment but from Africa and other developing countries at all. There was nothing um, at all. So this came through. And I was like... Are they serious? This is the most stupid statement you could e- even share and wonder broadcast. Why would you do that? And as you rightfully said, you know, health inequalities are real things. And as we're seeing now from the, the statistics coming out of New York itself, the greatest percentage of people being affected by those are people who don't have access to uh, health care, don't have access to decent jobs, decent sanitation, decent housing, and guess what? A lot of them are ethnic minorities. So that's been debunked in three weeks based upon data coming back. But it's taking three weeks for the data to surface and get get through the system. So I'm really, really want to put out there: anyone put out information that is not ground in the science that you cannot evidence, please just don't do it because what we need now is solidarity. What we need now is real information that, adds value to people's life that can keep them safe and their loved ones safe. So in terms of mental health, as you're talking about the, the deep plunge, the, 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 the spike is, has yet to come because we've been fighting the acute side of things here. And there's going to be many people that have never been unemployed before because their skills didn't warrant um, appraisal because coronavirus has not hit because maybe you're doing a job where you physically have to be in a shop. So, and they've always worked. So you've got, I think, a large percentage of people that are going to be new mental health patients, clients, service users coming to the system whereby years of underfunding, there's not been many clinicians in the first place to manage. Certainly when I qualified as a nurse, oh, I think 2003, I <laughs> can't remember, um, we had more especially services, drug and alcohol was, were kind of like separate. You know, we had then older people services, CAMs, um, learning disabilities, a lot of, there was a lot more um, separate services to dealing with um, different types of presentations that a person can present
2: so, with. We're just coming out of 10 years of austerity. Mm. Uh, and, I mean, I'm not quite sure what the government will do after this. Will they have Austerity on steroids for another 10 years. Mm. I mean, there will be nothing left in the NHS. Yeah. So, one reason that we, we're not as prepared as we should be right now to fight coronavirus is because of 10 years of austerity. Yeah. Uh, I know a lot of really good staff, very good doctors and nurses who resigned, they left, mm. they had enough. Mm. And now the government's desperate for them to come back again. Yeah. They're trying to encourage nurses and doctors who have retired in the past five years to come back to work again yeah. because there's, there's a shortage. At the end of the day, you know, doctors and nurses, they need to get paid. If you don't pay them enough, they'll go. They go to the private sector. They go to a different country. Uh, you know, They're not going to work for, for cheap. They're not going to work for free. No. So that, that investment is really crucial. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, when I was training a psychiatrist, it's going back you know, twenty twenty years, there, there, were, there was a lot of money poured into the NHS by the then Labour government, and a lot of new teams were set up. We had beds, we had psychiatric beds then, yeah, uh, and we could really easily admit someone. Now there is a waiting list to get really sick mental health patients uh, to be admitted to a psychiatric ward for treatment. I I totally agree with you because um I would have
1: liked to see over the last twenty years better outcomes, better quantifiable, measurable outcomes. And I don't see that because of this whole revolving door to, because to get admitted right now into a mental health bed is so difficult. You've got to be so, so unwell. The metrics they use to get you back into the community, the baseline is so low and it's normally measured by how, how much in adherence are you to medication? or behavioural factors, you are quiet, you are settled, you're not causing any problems on the ward, and you take the medication as, as prescribed, then you, then, then, then you go. And we, we say that's a success. Patient is being discharged. But we've never demonstrated with all the technology, with all the new wards that were built, any way where we, whereby we could demonstrate that this patient came in and we enhanced their ability to self-manage we enhanced the ability to take better control of their health decisions so that by the time they left, they were fully capable of taking their medication independently and then knew the reasons why they take the medication. We're still working on very much on the behavioral model. They have conformed to the rules and regulations. So they're going back home and guess what? They come back. And that, that I think that is to, to do with what you're talking about before the 10 years of austerity, the cutbacks. So a lot of, Talented individuals who are really at the forefront of of patient empowerment, embracing the recovery model, they're not there anymore. So,
2: I mean, I I can tell you as a consultant psychiatrist, Mm -hmm. uh, I can quite easily move to the private sector and I can almost double my salary overnight. There are a lot of jobs there for me in the private sector. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as well as doubling my salary, there'll be benefits associated with it. The hours will be less. Uh, I'll get, uh, oh, you know, I could get a company car, I could get other expenses, I could also get health insurance. So it's, and yeah, and if you put too much pressure on, on NHS stuff, because at the end of the day, NHS is made up by the staff. Yes. It's the staff that make a team run. Mm. If you dumb down the service by not paying enough, by not having enough resources, the staff leave. Simple as that. You can't force them to work. For yeah. the NHS, yeah, um, and then you get a you get a situation whereby the the system struggles when when there's a pandemic, and it's a question of ownership.
1: Now, you know, I, I think you're 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 alluding to it. Now, when I when I was working frontline on the wards, I worked directly for the NHS. There was a time when obviously you go to agency and you do half and half, you know, for more shifts. But if you look at it now, agencies. Control most of the staff within the NHS, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a nurse. So these, these, these nurses and doctors that are being trained now, who who owns them eventually is going to be based upon not the NHS. They're going to be working for an um, agency that can capitalize on their own monetary gains as well, opposed to the NHS, because I don't think the NHS has the, the mechanisms. The support, the benefits in in place to to enable people to work in a very modern way, as we, as we're seeing right now, working from home, having the ability to have um compassionate leave when you need it. Really, the things that you need um, are not in place within the NHS. You're very much deemed like I remember going to work and I was physically not well. No, I was I was not in the right shape of. Um, to go to work at all, but the obligation for me to work was so high. You end up going to work anyway, and you end up putting yourself at risk because if there's a serious or untoward incident that happened on your shift, the NHS doesn't does, doesn't really care um, that you are not in the fit state because they'll say you should not come to work anyway. But the pressure for you to still go to work was there as well. So I just believe that there needs to be a lot more money pumped into NHS in terms of so that they can actually be confident in holding on to the staff. So the staff actually work for the NHS and there's a greater incentive, similar to whereby there's, there's incentive for people to get a job opposed to claim benefits. There's that incentive the government's put in place that you get more money if you go to work because you're reducing the benefit payout, payouts anyway. They don't really do that in the NHS. They're, they're still left in this situation, as you quite rightly explaining. You could write this minute, you could go to the private sector and double up. You know, then they need to pump real money into the NHS so that they can retain staff. It's not going to be based upon goodwill. We're seeing competent doctors and nurses dying right now on the front line, putting their families at risk
2: to, yeah. to save lives. And, and this issue that we've been hearing a lot, uh, PPEs, uh, personal protective equipment, it really should be a non-issue We shouldn't be debating the fact that there aren't enough PPEs going around. I mean, you don't send your soldiers into battle without boots and helmets, do you? No, you don't. You give them the resources they need. They're not frontline. They could potentially die for their country, but they need to have the resources and the equipment. Similarly, our doctors and nurses, our frontline staff, are fighting this virus. They need to have the equipment to keep them safe because uh, my next video is going to be on mental health effects and stuff. And it's, it's re- really significant. Uh, um, again, in, in psychiatry, we're not, we're not quite front line, although the, the, the government may send us to, to, to work in any departments if things go downhill. Mm. Uh, but I hear a lot from my, my colleagues who are just really, really struggling. Uh, they, they, they feel anxious at work, the fear for I mean, fear is is natural to feel fear. You know, you're dealing you're dealing with really sick people, and you could catch this virus, and you could die of COVID. Nobody wants to die, and then the fear is that you're going to catch the virus and take it home to your family. You may live with your elderly parents. You know, you may have a caregiver at home. You pass it on to them. Sure. So. Sure. And that could lead to general anxiety symptoms. So it could really have devastating short-term and long-term mental health effects sure. on stuff. Sure. Fatigue, burnout, then depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, even. It's, 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 through, it's through the roof. And I
1: think through the roof. And I think that um where we didn't do well in mental health was to appreciate the physicality, the physical aspects of an individual. When we do care planning, we, it's very much heavily focused on what the person's experiencing, opposed to they're experiencing that in their body that might also have other problems associated with them. So I've seen many care plans. So I used to review them from, from, for Southwest London and St. George's Trust, and very few at those times would have enough information to say, okay, fine, they, this person, because their mental health, has an underlying health problem anyway. And this is, this yeah. fun, this is the thing is, although it not, might not be clearly apparent, clearly a, a the whole PPP, without proper training, it will go amiss. Because in mental health, we're not being used to barrier nursing. We're not used to prepare uh, wearing that equipment so it requires the matrons and all of that; those those key members of the team to put in place robust training um, um, programs, so that we start doing um, understanding how to use it, and also on top of that, asking those right questions, so patients can be empowered to take better control of their their health. Because again, if there are wars, I've seen some wars whereby there's so many soft drinks, patients ordering takeaway with with no um with no real impetus to change their eating habits at all, because at the end of the day there's there's been no real push everything is about containing and then getting them out opposed to let's really stop applying and and helping them to live a better, more safe life, better health a healthy diet all those things that have not really been. And I think that it's because of the, the, the drain, you know, the brain drain stuff going elsewhere because of better better um
2: Yeah. And as you know patients with severe mental illness, for example, those with schizophrenia and bipolar, a typical patient that's open, that's being care coordinated by the NHS, they do badly physically. Yeah. So someone with schizophrenia will die twenty years younger, will, will live twenty years less. Compared to someone without schizophrenia, and one in ten patients with schizophrenia commit suicide. Yeah. So they need quite specific healthcare needs. Yeah. Um, they tend to suffer from obesity. They smoke a lot more than sure. They take drugs and alcohol sometimes to treat their their, their symptoms. Uh, so would, the one one worry I have, and a lot of us have, is that COVID. Uh, Coronavirus will affect them much more adversely, and it will. Yeah. And the rest of the population. These are people who do badly anyway. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and they are uh, more neglected. I know now under more uh, more pressure. Yeah. Uh, in
1: terms of future gazing, I know it's very early stages to future gaze is a, is a situation, but coming post coronavirus. I shouldn't imagine a healthcare, what would you imagine a healthcare system look like now? As as you quite rightfully explained that an a holistic set of issues. Was it would would that how would that transcend, how would that affect the funding? How would it affect a typical ward? What would that look like in your your estimation? I mean
2: broadly speaking, um uh, I hope that as a society, we will reflect on what's happening right now. And I hope that we become more caring, more compassionate and more equal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I think NHS needs to take the lead, on being the most caring organization out there. Sure. Sure. And you, you, you need funding for, you need resources. You can't make something out of nothing. No. Uh, and and we, we are in the caring profession, but we need the tools to provide that care. Um, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of my colleagues are thinking quite negatively. They're worried about the long-term economic impact. It, it shouldn't be. I mean, if, if there's proper planning, if there's proper resources, if we don't have another round of austerity, Rather the opposite investment.
1: Yeah.
2: There shouldn't be the the mental health consequences. Exactly. So we need that kind of better preparation. Yeah. Yeah. And and which includes into both primary and secondary care for mental health provision. So a lot of mental health patients in the next few weeks and months will go to the GPs. And the GPs needs need to have tools, so we need more. Health professionals, not nurses, even psychiatrists in primary care to deal with that. And if they cannot be managed in primary care, and also psychologists and counselors to provide therapy, which is crucial, then they can be referred onto secondary <laughs> services for more specialist input from a senior consultant or, or a senior psychologist uh, and a nurse. Sure. So, yeah. Yeah, no. And again, I'm also an addiction specialist. Um, it, it, it is known that people, during the time of crisis and economic recession, they drink more. So I think we need to bring temporary, or maybe even long-term measures in place to reduce that. Similar to what's happening in Scotland by bringing in minimum price per unit, maybe fifty pence per unit, to make alcohol more accessible, more uh, say less accessible and more expensive to uh, deal with the potential sort of alcohol correlating pandemic that we may have because of coronavirus. I, I totally So agree. it's important to to prepare for, for the the secondary and tertiary consequences yeah. of, of what's happening right now. And I would just add to
1: that that we all have a role to play in that. Even celebrities have a role to play in that. Um, there was a lot of uh, there was quite a few prominent celebrities that when the coronavirus and the lockdown was was um, enforced. Said I'm stocking up on my alcohol. There are quite a few celebrities said that quite openly. I'm stocking
2: up my alcohol
1: because I'm, hmm. I'm stuck. I
2: mean, if you go to the alcohol aisle of Sainsbury's, I mean, there's hardly anything there. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, toilet paper's gone, and all the alcoholic drinks have gone as well.
1: I know. I know. And and drink is one of those things that can creep up on you, and it's one of those addictions <laughs> that's very very hard <laughs> to fight. And I think in terms of what you're talking about, the um the future gazing of how the NHS needs to position itself, I think a lot of great work was was taking place prior coronavirus. And hopefully hopefully that still continues in terms of integrated care models. Yeah. Um more joined up care between primary, secondary care, utilizing other services, pharmacies to get involved, schools. <laughs> We
2: have, we have the data, yeah. you know, we have policies, we have holistic care, we have the recovery model. So holistic care, you know, everything has to be joined up. Yes. Uh, and, you know, we have recovery model, like what you said at the beginning, you know, patients have to learn to look after themselves. They have to have a meaningful life outside mental health services. You need to have some kind of employment. Yeah. So we know what we need to do, but we're not doing it. And unfortunately, it, it does come to, you know, poor planning, poor leadership, and inadequate resources. 100%. For example, they, they, they talk about joint health social care, and it's so important for psychiatry. You know, a lot of our patients are poor. They need proper housing. And it's, it's social services who deal with the housing side. Now, a few years ago, in, in our MDTs, in our multidisciplinary teams, we have social workers. Uh, and now, it, 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 for, for because they were not really meeting their targets and they were using different – it's red tape, it's just red tape – they were taken back to town halls. And so that's created a barrier between sort of health professionals, like psychiatrists, nurses, psychologists, and social workers. And that kind of joint-up care that everyone talks about is not happening. Because physically we segregated. Yeah. And there's a barrier between us and we have to make a referral to them. And uh, there's a huge turnover of staff, uh, both nurses and social workers. And so every time you contact them, there's somebody new. And it's just, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, we, we know what we need to do, but we're not doing it.
1: Yeah. And I would also say we go to the educational institutions. I do a lot of work with um, Kingston University. Um, In collaboration with Southwest London and St George's Trust Whereby we educate the nurses To prepare them for working in a multidisciplinary environment And some of the teachings that we deliver to pre-reg nurses Also go out to social workers Also go out to other healthcare professionals Dentists and um, people in dentistry as well Psychology as well And also midwives Because it's all about that So, But when they do qualify It's important that all those teachings reflect what they're actually going to do in practice because it's all well and good. This is how you're going to work. But in the real world, your manager is not a social worker and they subscribe to different professions and as you, and you then you communicate on the lowest common denominator and have arguments sometimes or robust conversations about what is a care plan or a plan for care because you're now on the semantic level of communication that breaks down because of different professional um boundaries and and all of those things. So I see the future whereby STPs, ICSs, and quite rightfully as you pointed out, a lack of leadership. Because I went I sat in quite a few STP meetings and I was thinking, what, what, what are what were the outputs? What are the outputs? What you what goals, what are the end? Is you you can understand why they were merged into ICSs. So that people have very clear goals and strategies in place for t- to achieve an outcome, because quite quite frankly, I think we can move. Coronavirus has proven, with the right um stimulus or the right um reason, health can move at a frighteningly fast pace. Look at the Queen, um, no, was it the Florence Nightingale Hospital? How quick that was put together, and that's including okay. the EPR system um the the beds in place, the equipment, we could do things at a frankly fast pace when the yeah, will is there. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So um <laughs> so so, 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 I'm sorry, so I think I'm looking forward to you, your next one in terms of the
2: staffing and the effects <laughs> on just to yeah, shine and I'll light. try that later and I will share it on the on social media. Uh, yeah. On my LinkedIn and my my uh, also I'm on Twitter and I'm on Facebook as well. So I usually share those. Yeah, cool. So if you can, so I will I'll share. share your pages. Fantastic. I will share all
1: those links on on the podcast, and I will say um, thank you um, from the bottom of my heart for you spending the time to share with us um, your experiences regarding something that's an ongoing thing, you know. But we can see that there's there's a deeper understanding, and we need to be. Mindful that we just that we need to be mindful to pay attention to other aspects of this pandemic that are not directly health related, the byproducts of that, so that we could put safeguards in place to manage. Indeed,
2: thank you so much for having me. Thank
1: you very much. Have a great day,
2: sir. Take care. You can look after yourself. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye.
0: Thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out MikeDropClub.com and get the show notes and useful links. Subscribe to the podcast. Don't just live life, make life boom.